Welcome to the Review to Name podcast. I am, as always, Jordan. With me tonight, we have Chris. Hey, what's up? And Sam. It is I. Tonight on the show, we're going to be doing the standard news roundup. We're going to be talking about uh, our new game section and talking to our new game section's editor. We're going to be playing a new game here on the Review to Name podcast. And we're going to be returning to the Review to Named movie club to discuss Tokyo Story. So stick with us, and things should be interesting. Uh, in terms of the news roundup, which we're going to go ahead and begin right now, it was a pretty slow news week, so I gotta, I gotta admit, some of the things we're talking about here are grabbing at straws. Um, but why don't we just dive right into the uh, very, very shallow pool and hope we don't break our necks on the way in. How often are you grabbing at straws throughout your week, Jordan? I mean, I actually, I have a game where I just grab at straws repeatedly for like four to five hours a day. Um, so I'm, I'm a pretty good straw grabber, but this is, this is a Sounds particularly like a slow life. news week. It's such a slow news week that we're actually talking about me grabbing at straws. Um, but let's talk first about Jason Siegel announced that he is uh, adapting a documentary from last year, The Other F Word, which is about aging punk fans becoming fathers and how they deal with that. As fans of Jason Siegel here on the Review to Name podcast, um, I thought I'd like to hear what you guys think about that. So, Sam, why don't you start us off on that? Uh, well, I'm not really into punk <clears throat> at all, but I am into Jason Siegel, so that's good, right? We yeah. Are- <laughs> that is good. He's adapting this. Does that mean he is? He plans to star. He is co-writing the script. Okay, gotcha. Uh, cool. Uh, anything pressing to say about that? Otherwise, uh, I think it'll be good for Siegel because I, I think I've seen a few interviews with him recently where he said that he's kind of uh, getting a little fed up with playing the nice guy. So this might be a nice little transition of him back to being able to stretch his legs a little bit more. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, he'll probably have to play, like, you know, the dad of some sort, but also maybe he can cut, <clears throat> cut loose a little bit and get to swear again, which he hasn't been able to do recently and a lot of the stuff he's been doing with How Much Your Mother and Muppets and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I think Forgetting Sarah Marshall is just a fantastic comedy uh, that was written by Siegel. I liked the new Muppet movie a lot that he wrote, so... Um, I imagine it will be a good script. I think he's a, a game comedic presence, and I uh, I look forward to seeing it. I think the other effort is a potentially interesting story, I guess. Um, I didn't see the documentary, but I imagine that Siegel will do good things with it. Absolutely. It's easy to forget that Jason <coughs> Siegel is like a movie star. I mean, watching him on you know, How I Met Your Mother every week, it's like, this guy like headlines movies. Oh my god, the Patriots are marching down the field. <laughs> Yes, football is also going on, listeners, while we're doing this, so I don't care at all. But In case anybody didn't catch the game that happened three days ago. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, like, everyone, everyone listening to this knows what happened. <laughs> so you Weird go- future. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, we're going to go ahead and move on. Um, Bruce Springsteen wrote an Obama campaign song that he performed this week. Uh, did either of you see this? No. It was bad. You know what, though? Yeah, Obama good. survived one bad theme song with Will I Am in, his, in the last election, so... He made a joke about how the president calls him all the time and bugs him about music recommendations, which was clearly a joke. Then he sang things and made jokes about, hey, I can't rhyme with Obama, so the song is bad. Um, and then at the end, he was like, oh, by the way, I was joking about the president thing. Like, he doesn't really call me. As if anyone earlier in the, uh, uh, well, I guess at the concert, or those of us watching the video, was thinking, oh, yeah, Obama calls Springsteen all the time. So... It was a, it was a, I guess, cute. Wow, the voter, um, voter but it was not, with Obama. 
Well, he said Osama. He said drama. There are there are words. Comma. He killed Osama. Comma. As well as us. many other things. We're uh we're writing a, a Ghana campaign song for Obama right now on the That's show. Ghana. I'm just saying, whenever you really need, you know, to make a song with a lot of information, you should do it. We didn't start the fire style. And it, it might need to rhyme. It barely needs to rhyme. All you do is just list things that happened. Yes, um, and that is, of course, a great song. So we should all replicate We Didn't Start the Fire whenever possible. Much like Bruce Springsteen, I'm going to clarify, that was a joke. Um, and go ahead and use that to wrap up our very brief discussion of Bruce Springsteen writing an Obama campaign song, which isn't really a news story at all. I'm glad we <laughs> tackled that issue. Uh, but those of you who were curious about whether Bruce Springsteen was an Obama supporter uh, or if he had written a theme song for Obama, now your curiosity is satiated and we can move on. Um, in another very minor story, Lady Gaga is in consideration uh, for a role in Zoolander 2, which, since they're casting, it is apparently finally happening. Um, as a big fan of Zoolander, I've been long waiting for Zoolander 2, and I think it'll probably be good. Uh, I actually have higher hopes for it than Anchorman 2, because I know that this has been sort of tossed around for a lot longer, and um, I'm a little bit nervous about Anchorman 2, though I'm sure it'll be hysterical and I'll love it. So, what do you guys think about Zoolander 2? They are far too old to still be models. <laughs> They're also uh, so far removed from the first movie, I have no idea if it's going to be any, you know, if it's still going to be good. I have faith. Justin Thoreau's writing it, and I like him. Yeah. I don't know, it's just like... I don't know. I guess the second sequels are often pretty good, if not better, than the first one. But this has been like such a long time in the making, and I'm I'm skeptical. I'm gonna see it, but I'm skeptical. Same with Anchorman Two. See, yeah, I feel that way about Anchorman Two, but I feel for some reason I feel more confident about Zoolander Two. Maybe it's just because I think Zoolander was the better movie in the first place. For me it's the the whole quote frenzy had just finally died down around both of these movies. I'm not anxious for that to start up again. Yeah, I don't know. It never really annoys me quite as much when people are quoting movies that I actually like and find funny. Uh, when the whole Napoleon Dynamite thing was happening for a long time, that made me want to die slowly. But, but that was just because I didn't particularly like the movie and I didn't find the things that were quoting funny. So, I mean, I think it's a matter of taste. Man, you guys are going to hate my recommendation for next week's movie club then. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Napoleon Dynamite animated series. Not even a movie. Sam is just violating all the rules. There's, there's actually only one rule for movie club, That's and he decided to just throw it out the window. All right, it's not going to be that. Yes, yes, I know. Thanks, Sam. For the rest of the show, much like Bruce Springsteen, we should just repeat or and clarify whenever we make a joke. You're um, too good for us. To be clear, that was a joke. And now you're not sure whether it was a joke, right? Because I, I said it was a joke. Oh, we could yeah. just. This is how this is how little news we have to talk about this week. Um, Jordan, in, Jordan, what did you do this week? <laughs> I read all week because I'm a fucking law student, and that's all I ever do, Chris. All right, let's move um, on. So, in our final news story, we're going to make this a short uh, news roundup this week because there was nothing to talk about, um, unless I missed a giant news story somewhere. And if so, listeners, you should email me and say why didn't you talk about this thing, uh, Joaquin Phoenix went off on a bit of a rant about how he doesn't want an Oscar. In, the, uh, in my notes for News Roundup, I in fact wrote, Joaquin Phoenix doesn't want your fucking Oscar. Um, which, 
Basically, he said he hated doing the award show thing for Walk the Line. He doesn't want to do it all again. And I feel like this is something that comes up roughly every award season is someone being like, I don't want to be in the dog and pony show of the award show. We should be doing awards anyway. And as we've talked about before on the show, we kind of have the same conversation every couple of years, really every year, about award shows and whether we should really be awarding art anyway and what, why we still watch them and come to pretty much the same conclusions annually. But... Joaquin Phoenix is the one decrying the whole award show process this year. So, Chris, what do you think about this? Well, I think we should have a different conversation this year. Why don't award shows have more circus animals? Award shows should have more circus animals. Okay. <laughs> I, I mean, Jordan when, when Crystal the Monkey hosts the Oscars next year, I think uh, I think that'll be, you know, up in the circus animal department. Uh, if, if Joaquin Phoenix doesn't want an Oscar, then they don't have to give him an Oscar. I don't. I, I see this as just being a wash for everybody involved. <laughs> I don't know. I'm someone. I'm not a big Joaquin Phoenix fan as a rule, but I thought he was really good in The Master, and I would be kind of okay if he got an Oscar. Okay, someone will have to accept it on his behalf. Casey Affleck. <laughs> Casey Affleck can accept his Oscar. I'll take. They hang it. out, right? Yeah, I mean, they they made that fake documentary together. Okay. Well, I assume they're friends. <laughs> Uh, Sam, what do you think about Joaquin Phoenix hitting on the Oscars? Uh, I think it's fine. I kind of agree with him. I kind of hate the Oscars, but it's at the same time this thing that I'm obligated to watch. I, I'm obligated to myself. I have yeah, a complicated relationship with we the Oscars, blog it. as we all do. Yes, and we will probably discuss that at much greater length when award shows come around, because like I said, we inevitably do. Um... For now, let's just dive out of this uh, train wreck, car crash, burning explosion thing and close up the news roundup and move on. Um, We're going to bring John, our new games editor, on on, and we're going to talk about video games as an art form for a little while and what he wants to do with the game section. So uh, let's bring John on. All right. I'm going to hand things over to John. He's going to tell you you guys all about video games. One second. What's up, what's up? Hey, John, how's it going? It's going pretty well. How are you doing? Very well. Um, welcome to the Review Named podcast, and welcome to Review to Be Named as a team and as an going concern. Uh, you launched the game section last week with actually, I think, a lot of interesting content, so good work there. Thank you. Um, Appreciate that. We just wanted to bring you on and, and sort of let you give the mission statement for the section and talk to us a little bit about video games. So what do you, what do you want to do with the game section at Review to Be Named? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I kind of uh, touched upon it a little bit in my first article, but uh, one thing that's really cool is that I think video games are starting to become uh, more recognized as an artistic medium, which is really cool. Um, You know, more so now than uh, what it used to be in the past, Uh, people will look at a story at a video game and view it as art, which is really cool. And so what I want to try to do is um, on this website, expound a little bit more on the storyline that's going on in video games and kind of just uh, review it more as an art form rather than an actual uh, gameplay mechanic. So uh, that's kind of what I'm trying to do with this website right now, in case my first two articles weren't any indicator. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, then again, I am also reviewing like the story of Pokemon, so maybe I'm not doing so well in my first week. But that being said, uh, that's kind of what I hope to do in the future. I actually, I, I, I really liked that when I read your first article for the site. Um, yeah that you were talking about how most video game criticism is more about graphics and gameplay and kind of ignores the thing that is most important when you're looking at something for its artistic merits. 
yeah. or at least should be in the conversation. I can't say that it's necessarily more important than the graphics or the gameplay in video games, but the idea that we don't pay attention to the narrative and the idea that narrative is actually becoming much more important in video games as they develop, I think is really interesting. Oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, just expanding on that a little more, you know, um, with the advent of like technology build up and whatever, video games are really capable of doing amazing things at the moment. And I think that um, a lot of the reason why the uh, public right now doesn't really view video games as art is due to the reviewers not really focusing on the correct thing. Um, they're still, they still have the mindset of, oh, uh, well, what are the gameplay mechanics or uh, how, how is this game fun exactly? Why do I want to replay this game? Um, as opposed to um, all these uh, games right now that have great storylines going on that we really should be focusing on. And so I'm trying to view video games in general um, as a medium in which we look at the storylines and kind of uh, grade the video games off of that more so than the actual gameplay. Excellent. Um, another question that I wanted to ask you while we have you here are, do you have a favorite game or you know a few favorites you want to throw out there just to give people an idea of your taste and also to sort of let some of us who aren't as into video games know maybe where we should start if we want to get more into the medium? <laughs> um, games that I'm willing to divulge to you guys? Let me think about that for a second. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd say the uh, the top video game for me, at least, um, is going to be Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask, um, because I'm that fucked up. Um, am I allowed to say the F word, by the yes. way? Yes. Right <laughs> it's too late okay. now. All right. <laughs> I was going to say. Last week on the show, Sam talked about uh, the abortion special of Charlie Brown, so we kind of play fast <laughs> and loose with content standards here. That's amazing. All right. Um, all right. All abortion comments aside. Um, yeah, I'm definitely going to go with uh, Majora's Mask is my favorite game, simply because it was a game that thought outside the boundaries and had a really interesting um, storytelling technique which was that, you know, the same three-day spans repeated itself, um, which I thought was really fascinating because you got to see a lot of um, timelines within the storyline uh, from different angles. And so uh, the reason why I like Majora's Mask so much is because it, it really was one of the first games that I had ever played in which gameplay, while it was there and it was, was really amazing, kind of took more of a backseat to the actual storyline that was involved with the game itself. So, yeah, I, I would go with Majora's Mask, I think. I've been told for years, and um, Sam is one of the people, I think, who was pushing me, that I needed to play, uh, what is, Ocarina of Time, the, the like, quintessential Legend of Zelda game. My I'm god, not, you haven't played that? No, I'm not, see, I'm not a big video game guy, <laughs> and I just, um, I never had, I never had the, the time, you know, I had Ocarina of Time when I was a kid, because I had the N64, and everyone said, oh, this is a great game. Yeah. Um, and I think I got as far into it as, like, I didn't even get the sword at the very beginning of the game, I think, before I just gave up. Were you, like, pushing uh, people with a shield? I, you know, I think I played it for, like, probably 45 minutes, and I was like, this isn't cool at all, and I just left. Um, you just left, like, you left your house. You just <laughs> yeah, I left my bags. house. I haven't seen my family since then, actually. Legend, uh, went off to college afterwards. Just yeah. pushed me away. Um... <laughs> Yeah, no, it was when I was when I was the age that I played the most video games. It was mostly I would get frustrated with games that I wasn't very good at, and then just leave them behind forever. Mm -hmm. um, another example: Tomb Raider, where I played the first level, yeah. the bear and the wolf or whatever kept eating me. I yeah. thought it was scary, and I never beat it. Um, <laughs> so that's that's most of my video game life. And maybe if I was a more capable human being, I'd play more video games. <laughs> um, well, here's the cool part, which is that. Um... A lot of video games uh, currently right now are trying to cater towards the more casual fan. In fact, you'll find in more video games than not, 
uh, there's actually an easy mode that they offer to people that really just want to experience the storyline and really just kind of want to play through the game to experience said story. Um, which I think is really cool. It, it's showing that video games are heading towards a different direction and kind of steering away from awesome gameplay mechanics and trying to go towards we're telling a story and we would love it if fans recognize that story. As as a hardcore gamer, and do you feel like modern games are losing something by trying to appeal more broadly? Or do you think it's just not really an issue? Um. Well... Here's the thing. I would say that they were losing something if the gameplay mechanics weren't so amazing at the moment as they are. Um, and again, that goes back to uh, uh, technology and what we're capable of. Like, I don't know if you guys have seen anything with the Wii U. Dumb name, I'll definitely admit that. And you can't say Wii U without sounding stupid. But, <laughs> but, but like, the Wii U and what it's capable of is kind of astonishing. Um, there's, 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 you know that you have like a little HD screen as a controller now. Mm -hmm. And basically uh, one of the tech demos that they showed was uh, you're playing a 2D side-scroller Super Mario game and essentially you can take the screen and look around your room and see the world in 3D. uh, The Super Mario world that you're actually playing right now. um, Which is ridiculous. And so like there's innovations like that that's going on um, which make me believe that the gameplay is still there. Now there's just a broader focus on okay, the gameplay mechanics are going to be great. Let's focus a little more on the story. Let's focus on, you know, making this more than just an experience that people pick up from time to time and have fun with. So, Well, I think, I mean, th- like, realizing a 3D realm and putting people in the game is really the, the pinnacle of video gaming technology, right? Like, that's what we're all aiming for, headed for eventually. Or oh, at God, least that's yeah. how I always think of it, right? Oh, God, yeah. Tron, Tron got it right from, like, the 80s or whenever Tron was born. Like, like, like the advent of video game will be when we can actually integrate ourselves into the game and, you know, beat each other in, in the cycle game or whatever was in Tron. So, yeah, I, I, I would say that's basically the advent of what we're going for. And, I mean, the Wii U sounds like it's the closest we've been, which I guess the Wii sounded like that as well. And I don't know, the Wii never really took off the way it was supposed to, right? Like... Yeah, it really didn't. Um, the cool thing about uh, Nintendo is that it tries to separate itself from uh, Microsoft and Sony by being the innovative um, company of the three. Um, and so, you know, this is the first uh, next generation console system to come out. Um, and it's trying to just make a splash by being like, hey, listen, we won't have the greatest graphics, we won't have the greatest games, but check it out, you get an awesome new screen. So now you're looking at the game through two screens, we're awesome. So, yeah, that's do you, kinda, do you think that makes thing. it worthwhile, um, or are you more of a fan of what Microsoft and Sony are doing with pushing forward the gameplay? Because I know you've talked a lot about how you think storylines are more important in games, and if the games aren't as good on the Wii U, does that mean it's not as good as the system, or do you think there's a little bit of room for both? I, I, I really think there's wiggle room for both. Um, you know, the, Nintendo really hasn't set itself up to be uh, that video game system that can handle great gameplay mechanics for the hardcore gamers, as well as that mature storyline that everyone's looking for. Um, That being said, uh, the technical uh, aspects of the way you make it so that they can actually go forward with a good storyline. So I I don't think, I don't think it's something that'll hold them back necessarily, but it's definitely not, it's definitely not conducive to what video games are heading towards in general, I would say. Okay. Um, So, this may be a little bit of spoiler before we get into year-end list territory, which is coming up faster than I would like, considering how much catch-up I have to do. But <laughs> are there any games that you think stand out for you uh, in terms of like what's the best been the best of this year so far? Oh, best of this year. Okay, so um, 
And obviously, this is just off the top of your head. You don't need to uh, come up with your number one or anything right now, because I'm sure we'll have you write a list at the end of the year that does just that. Oh, yeah, absolutely, and I look forward to writing that. But, um, you know, some great games that have come out this year have been, uh, you know, Mass Effect 3 has come out, and that, uh, even though it has a very controversial ending, has been a pretty wide success. I would, I would go with that as one of my games. You know, uh, Borderlands 2 um, is pretty uh, amazing as it is right now. Um, I would go with those two as my top two games. Um, there's a lot of um, other uh, underdogs that are pretty good right now, and uh, when I actually sit down and think about the games that are amazing, I, I will give you a better answer. Sure, obviously. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm just putting it on the spot right now. Oh, sure, but just going off of um, games that are great at relaying the the story experience that I'm kind of looking for in video games and kind of trying to expand on, I would go with those two. Yeah. Okay, so those are those are good for, for those of us who are more... Uh, versed in narrative medium um, to sort of delve into. Not that I will ever have time to play either of those games because I'm in <laughs> law school right now, but in theory, okay. if I was going to, those would be a good place to start. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Mass Effect 3, obviously you'll have to start with Mass Effect 1, and then, you know, you'll flunk out of law school, so I wouldn't recommend it necessarily. <laughs> but uh, Well, that yeah, might happen yeah. in any case. <laughs> exactly. It might be inevitable anyway, so you might as well have a great experience along the way. But yeah, anyway, right? Uh, yeah, but, but, but anyway, like, I, I would go with one of those two stories for sure. All right, cool. Well, um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Sam, is there anything else you wanted to ask before I let John go back to his life? Uh, should I, I keep hearing great things about Borderlands 2, like I mentioned. I haven't played yeah. Borderlands 1, and I'm not a huge gamer. Is yeah. this a game I can just pick up and play? Honestly, it's not one that I would recommend to newcomers. Okay. Um, it, it's it's a little more, um, you know, hardcore shooter-based. Have you ever played, like, Call of Duty series? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, a Counter-Strike. Okay, so if you've played those games before, then I would definitely recommend picking it up. If anything, because Borderlands 2 is really awesome at making the pop culture references. Okay. I think I actually mentioned it. Yeah, I think I actually mentioned You did it in, in your uh, Top of the Flag poll, which came out on Friday. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and uh, they're really awesome at just referencing pop culture in general, and they have a really good sense of humor about them. So cool. I would I would recommend, if you're, if you're well-versed in shooters, to pick it up. For okay, sure. cool. Yeah. All right, well, uh, John, thank you for coming on. Um, those of you who enjoyed what John has to say or who want to look more into video games and video game criticism, check out the game section at Review Be Named, where John will be writing. And uh, John, please come back to the podcast whenever you'd like. We'd love to have you around. <laughs> Thanks, bud. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. We're going to wait and have Chris jump join us again now. Hello. I'm back. Hey, Chris is back. All right. Um, and now we're going to move into a game. This is a brand new Review Be Named original game that I have come up with, so... When you all hate it, you can go ahead and blame me and send all your hate mail directly to me, which is what Chris says when he invents a game anyway, so it all comes to me. Um, it's called Casting Call, and the premise is this. You've been tapped by one of the top movie studios to be the casting director on their newest project. I'll give you the basic synopsis for the film, as well as a description of the parts that you need to cast. Each of you will cast those parts, and the person who puts together the best or the most interesting cast will win. The best part of this game is, because I am hosting it, I literally cannot lose. It's about time uh, you okay. can't lose. Yeah, I know. So this is this is going to be exciting for me, at least. Well, that's what you think right now. But... <laughs> yeah, we'll find, a, find way. a way. Yeah. The game. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to open a Word document so I can write this shit down. I'm going to forget everything. <clears throat> okay, well, I'm, I, it's a little bit complicated, I guess, but I'm trying, I'll am trying. i try to make it as simple oh. as possible. Um, I don't think it's any more complicated than your A-team draft, Chris. So A-team draft was easy. Yeah, because okay, so, it's the same 18. You could just, it doesn't matter. Spit it out. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. So this is the premise of the movie. 
in the next summer's most anticipated blockbuster hit that doesn't steal any ideas from 1998, an asteroid is going to collide with the Earth unless a crack team of specialists can save it. Unfortunately, that crack team of specialists is killed by an evil queen, and now a ragtag bunch of misfits is the world's only hope of survival. Can they stop the evil queen and the asteroid before the world is torn to bits? Find out next summer in The Revengers. Wait a minute, just quickly. Is this, is this going to be a comedy? Is this going to be an action comedy? Is this going to be a straight action movie? This is an action comedy. The idea, the idea is that it's, it's got the action principle, but there's going to be a lot of room for some comedic chops along the way. Okay. Um, it's, yeah, it's more, of a, it's more of a broad parody type of deal. These are the cast, parts you need to cast. We have the president, who is calm, cool, collected, and a little bit desperate at the same time. We have the evil queen, who is supposed to be sort of a campy, over-the-top, scene-chewing type of character. We have Dag Taggart, the roguish leader of the crack team of specialists. The studio is looking for a cameo appearance by a well-known celebrity here. Wait, have so that, what's that part again? Uh, Dag Taggart, the, lotus, the roguish leader of the crack team of specialists. This is this is going to be someone who's going to get killed off guy, in like right? five minutes. But wait, 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 wait. He's like one of the like specialists that dies early on. Yes. Okay. This is they just want you to find uh, a well-known celebrity to throw in this role to make everyone laugh at the fact that he gets killed off immediately. Okay. Um, then there's Tina, a young actress who's in need of a breakout role. She's going to be one of the misfits. She's a little bit of an awkward teenager and discovers what, that she has what it takes to save the world. And then there's Jack Mark, the young roguish action hero type with a bit of a sense of humor. If the movie does well, he's going to have the starring role in the sequel that will inevitably come out. Um, so, those what are the... What was the name of the last guy? Jack Mark. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The ragtag group of people is just Tina and Jack? That's no, it? No, no, there are a bunch of them, but you're only casting these two because I didn't want to make it too complicated, Sam. Okay. <laughs> Sam... God! Are Tina and Jack, are they, like, gonna fuck each other? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a summer blockbuster action comedy. They're probably gonna get together at the end of it. I don't know, I thought it'd be pretty cool if they didn't fuck each other. Well, maybe they don't. I haven't read the script. I'm just hiring you as the casting director. Jesus Christ, what an irresponsible producer. Holy shit. (laughs) Okay, so, because Sam is being such a terrible human being, we're gonna let Chris go first. Chris, we have the president, the evil queen, Dag Taggart, Tina, and Jack. Uh, to be cast. Mm. <laughs> All right, let's because I think this is one of the few roles we've never seen him in. Let's go with President Nicholas Cage. President ah. Nicholas Cage. Um. Okay, so now we need an Evil Queen, right? That is correct. Uh, <laughs> you know, I I always just want to say, um, Charlize Theron. But I, I'm not going to do that. She's already played Evil Queen. I know, but it's just so easy to pop her in there. Like, it, you know, <laughs> she's, she's very niche now. Um, how about we go Famke, uh, Famke Jansen? How, how do you say her name? Famke Jansen. I've never it. known. Famke. I think that's, I say it the way you just yeah. said. Let's say, let's say Famke Jansen is the Evil Queen. All, All right. right. Zenya Anatop coming back uh, playing the Evil Queen. I like it. Okay. Um, Dag okay. Taggart. Dag Taggart is going to be Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman. Alrighty. Um, now we need... Uh, Tina. 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 <laughs> oh, what is her name? Shoot. She was in Up in the Air. Uh, Anna, Anna Kendrick? Kendrick? Yes. yes. That's Anna, a good pick. Alright. Anna Kendrick for Tina. And Jack. 
Um, hmm. So this is like how how over the top action comedy are we talking here? Um, I'm thinking it's somewhere in the realm of like probably that the other guys with Will Ferrell and Mark. Uh, why am I Mark Wahlberg? I for some reason I blanked that. Is that as broad that. as we're going? Because that's pretty broad. That I think it's, that's pretty much just comedy. You know, what, you know what? Screw it. Screw it. Donald Glover. We're gonna go with Donald Glover. Wow. All right. Um, it's an. I mean, it's okay. It's an action comedy, Sam. So like, it can be as broad as that if you'd like, but it can also be more actiony if that's the way you want to cast it. Okay. A lot of this is gonna come down to the casting. Okay. Uh, I think I, so, I think I have a good mix. All right. Well, um, we've got Chris's cast up there. So Sam. You can either uh, steal this from Chris, which I think had a pretty nice lineup, or you can, you know, blow it and let him walk away with the, the victory. So okay. go ahead All right. see so who you we, want for are, the president. Are we assuming that money is no object here since this is like a Michael Bay-esque? This film? is this summer's most anticipated blockbuster hit. They're going to put a lot of money behind it. Okay. All right. So for president, I picked, I think he would play kind of desperate and be a little bit funny, but also be able to pull off the dramatic stuff. Tom Hanks. All right. I think Everyone Tom Hanks wants to see is a president. president. Tom Hanks, I think. Would be great. Evil Queen. Because I don't even know. How is there an evil queen? Um, it doesn't make any sense, but I think it's funny. I pick... Uh, is she the evil queen of England? No. Damn. She's basically... Actually, I have written down here. She's basically schmificent, if you will. Um, but, you know, sort of a... Sort of an over-the-top queen character. I think this is something that's been done before. I went with uh, Meryl Streep. A bit obvious, nice. but she she's played evil very well. And I, I think, think, I think she would have fun with it. She always seems to do well in those roles. And she, I think it's kind of like, for Hanks and Streep, it would be like opportunities to kind of chew the scenery, which I think they'd thrive in. Yeah, I think I think both of them like that. Um, I think for Dag Taggart, who you would think is like, oh, he's going to be the hero of the story and he's going to like save it, Harrison Ford. Because no one, nice. no one expects oh, to yeah. see Harrison Ford die in like the first five minutes. No, it would. I mean, it would almost be like a, a joke on when Indiana Jones shoots that guy instead of sword fighting with him. Exactly. Right? Like it's exactly what you don't expect. Harrison Ford does not die in like the first five minutes. All right, okay. I, I like that. Okay, how about Tina? Uh, Tina, an uh, uh, awkward teenager who needs a breakout role. Of course, Aubrey Plaza. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And Jack Mark, he is the better version of what Shia LaBeouf was in Transformers, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Ooh. Not a typical action guy build. He's not like a big guy, but he can pull it off. And he's a really good actor and charming and funny. Yeah, and he's funny and he's been having he's been having a good year. So I can see how he might get tapped for this big blockbuster next year because he's never done any of those before, right? No, I don't, um, I don't. I can't no. think of any. But I think <laughs> I the mix think, of having like the heavy hitters play kind of the more quote like adult roles, Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep, those being, but it really being a movie that belongs to like the younger actors, Aubrey Plaza and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I think that'd be an interesting mix. Yeah, um, I think so. I actually, I think both of you delivered excellent casts. Um, the studio would keep you both on the payroll for the next time we play this game. Yeah. Um, but I, I think at the end of the day, I'm going to have to give it to Sam. Yes. Sam! I can't lose at these games. It's, the, 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 Nicolas Cage as president would be great. Famke Johnson, I really don't know if I see her as the evil queen, though. That's, that's the problem. 
Um, when I when I think Dag Taggart in my head, I was thinking I almost in fact had it be a Bruce Willis type, but I didn't want to take him off the the board. Um, so I think Harrison Ford is just makes a little bit more sense than Hugh Jackman there. Although he is the Wolverine, so he is the Wolverine. Um, and I I really see some uh, some Aubrey Plaza Joseph Gordon Levitt chemistry developing. Although I love both Anna Kendrick and Donald Glover, and I actually I could see them doing well in these roles as well. So. Both of you did excellently. It was very close, but Sam, I'm going to have to give this one to you. In a way, we're all winners, except for Jordan. <laughs> See, we found a way that you lost. Yeah, that was great. We did it, guys. I love hanging out and talking to you guys. You don't make me hate myself at all. Um, uh, you sing it, it's less sad. Yeah, right? That's what I've been telling myself. <laughs> That's why I sing everything. Um, before we take this to some weird, very dark places, like we occasionally do on the show, why don't we move on and revisit the review to be named Movie Club? Last time out, we talked about Bronson, and I selected this week's uh, movie, Tokyo Story. Those of you who've been listening to the podcast for a while know that Tokyo Story uh, was recently named the third greatest movie of all time in the Sight and Sound poll, and it was also the highest-ranked movie that no one on the podcast had seen. So I wanted everyone to go out and watch Tokyo Story, and I know we all did. So why don't we talk about it? Um, Chris, let's start with you. What did you think of Tokyo Story? Well, I would like to start off by telling our listeners that something we discovered uh, very recently was that Tokyo Story is actually on YouTube in its entirety, and it is subtitled. It's a foreign film, so uh, there's there's a version with English subtitles that's on YouTube. So if you're interested in our discussion or if it's just something that piqued your interest when you saw the Sound Insight poll, uh, go on YouTube and check it out. It's out there, um, and uh, we hope you enjoy it. Uh, that said, um, I, I, I definitely like the film. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I believe I discussed this with you earlier, Jordan, when uh, I was saying well, – you were the one who said that um, you didn't know if it was quite uh, – top three material which i think we can get into in a little bit and i think i might agree with you on that but um it's it's interesting it's very very deliberately paced i'm not going to say slow it is slow but (laughs) we'll say say deliberate um it's very very uh decompressed everything um is just like unfolds over time but I, i i i enjoyed it um I don't know how to like narrow things down for where a discussion is going to yeah, go. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute first. Okay. Sam, what about your opening thoughts? Um, I thought it was okay. I mean, I was, I honestly, I wasn't blown away by it. I thought it was good. And I thought it was kind of a movie that, you know, like Chris said, it's a slow burn. And I think it built up to a really good, uh, second half. Um, I think what's interesting is that this is like the number one or is it the number the number one in the director's poll, right? Or Yeah, it's been number one in the director's poll for a very long time and it just it sort of edged its way up over the last three, I think, second sound polls. Where is which it is, now? It's number three on uh on the like all time poll. See, I would I would disagree with that. Yeah, and I <laughs> I mean I know we're gonna talk about that. Um, um, in fact but, but basically what I saw of it and kind of looking at it from like a director's or trying, I'm not a director, obviously, but trying to look from it at that point of view. I thought it was interesting that, like, the movie was pretty much completely inside somebody's house. I mean, different people's houses, but it was always inside, yeah. and it was always from this, like, position of 
I thought it like it did an interesting job changing perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, it's rare that you see a movie from I guess this was uh, 1953, yes. where a lot of characters are speaking directly in a camera, and it feels like more personal. It feels almost like a confessional to me. Um, and I also like that a lot of the movie was filmed from like the floor of of all the rooms. Yeah, it's the it's the floor mats uh, was where the camera was placed like the whole time. Yeah, so it's kind of like oh, you're sitting in there too. So I think there was like a lot of really interesting things with perspective here. Um, part of it to me felt like it's like this is the ultimate Jewish mother guilt trip movie. It's like oh, you, <laughs> you never come see us. I mean, we come out to Tokyo to see you, but you don't see us. <laughs> I'm going to go home and die now. (laughs) And of course, the only one who appreciates them is the one who is in a blood relative and who is a widow. Who, by the way, she was great. She was awesome. That actress. Um, Um, I don't know. I don't know any character's name. I don't know any actor's name. Um, Um, Setsuko Hera. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. That's her name. Um, And she and the person who played the father in the movie actually did six Uzu movies before this. Okay. He was great, the the actor who played the father. Yeah. Oh he, yeah. He was my favorite role. I thought I thought it was pretty much across the board well acted. Yeah. Um and yeah, I guess just a few of my opening thoughts. I uh I thought it was very good. Um obviously we're gonna talk about its place in the canon in a minute, uh, because that's part of the reason we selected this this for the movie club. Uh I thought it was uh very good. I really sort of got pulled into it and like Sam said, it's got a very strong second half. Uh, the performances were excellent. I thought the direction was excellent. Um, and it was just, you know, sort of a, a, a slowly paced, sweet, sad little movie. Um, so I quite liked it. But, none, but of us, none of us were like, whoa, we were blown away. We're putting this in our top ten. No, like, I'm not yeah. that but here's, here's the thing, though. I, I was thinking about this while I was watching the movie and afterwards. Um, it's sort of, it, you know, when you have a movie that's at the top of the, of the canon in that way, and especially Sight and Sound, which as we talked about when we discussed the poll when it came out a uh, month and a half ago or so, um, you know, Sight and Sound is the canon, right? They're, they do the list once every 10 years, and that's sort of like the gold standard in terms of the movie canon. Um, and Citizen Kane had been up at the top there forever. And, you know, when people see Citizen Kane for the first time, myself included, you go, really, that's the greatest movie ever? I think the higher you're ranked in Sight and Sound, and really in any film canon, uh, the more people are going to sort of try to knock you off that pedestal. So I feel like we probably all had a little bit of that going in, where it's like, this is the third greatest movie of all time, huh? You better wow me. And I don't, you know, I don't think it's that type of movie. So I wonder if maybe I might appreciate it more going back to it again and again, as I've appreciated Citizen Kane more every time I've watched it. Um, And maybe if the fact that it's so high in the canon and that's how we were introduced to it had some effect on our, well, it was good, but it wasn't great, uh, reacting to it. What do you guys think about that? I, I suppose that's definitely possible. I also just kind of feel like this was, at, at its core, a very simple story. Like, it, it was it was a very well-told story, and I think it there's a very, uh, I, I think the emotional punch, like, really works very well. I mean, like, Sam, you joked about the whole, like, guilt trip sort of thing, but mm-hmm. I mean, I... I wanted to call my mom after watching. Yeah, I, I thought the exact same thing. Like, I better call um, my parents. <laughs> yeah, but but I, I just in terms of, I didn't really. It, it was it's, it's at its core. I think a very it's a very well done film, but it's it's also a very simple film. I, I it seemed it was very focused on its themes, which I think are very universal, very relatable, but also maybe not as quite as ambitious as I would say Citizen if we're talking about in relation with Citizen Kane as we just were a minute ago, I would not say nearly as ambitious as that film was. 
Right, I, I would agree, and I don't even think that Uzu was trying to be particularly ambitious with this, you know, it's just, he, I, I think the camera moved once in this movie, um, it's very, it's sort of very static, and like Sam said, it's all shot inside, um, but what, what I think he did do well, and I think you touched on this a little bit, Sam, was sort of put you in the room and make you feel like you were with these characters, you know, each of them, each of them sort of became someone I could relate to on some level or someone I either sympathized with or was a little bit angry at. Um, and those scenes uh, at the end of the movie when when both the, the mother and the father just like open up to the widow and thank her for actually caring about them and spending any time with them. And especially that last scene between the father and her where it's like both of them are breaking down and it was, it really felt like I was invading on a personal moment in a way that I think a lot of uh, big emotional shows like that don't tend to. And I think it's, I think it's a credit to the way the film builds the characters and sort of slowly paced and takes its time that when it gets to that big punch at the end, it really lands. Yeah, I, yeah, I think I, part of me wonders, like, I, I think it would, I would have to watch it a few more times before I fully um, make up my mind on whether a lot of the repetition throughout the first hour of the film was really necessary to sell that emotional punch at the end. Uh, at the moment I could kind of go either way on it, but um, then again, it, it worked so well that maybe I just, I, I just didn't notice it working on me. If that makes sense. Sure. Um, this is sort of a, a wild comparison, but I think, I think it was, it's a little bit similar in that way to the good, the bad, and the ugly which the first time I saw it, I, I thought the first, you know, hour and a half of the movie was incredibly slow and drawn out. Yeah. And then I realized by the time you get to the end, when you have that showdown, that all of the slow, drawn out, uh, you know, world building that Leone was doing in those early scenes comes to a head in that moment and is so much more effective as a result. Um, so I, I, I think from this perspective right now, I think The Good, The Bad, and Ugly is a better movie. But it's similar, in, I guess, in a way that it sort of builds well to its final moment and makes you appreciate the rest of the film more as a whole once you've seen that. Sure. Okay. Sam? Yeah. Sam might be dead. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I, I'd, I'd agree with both of you guys. Honestly, I didn't, I didn't, you know, have, like, the emotional connection that I think both of you guys had to this movie. Um, you know, like I said, it was good. I don't, it wasn't, like, a great movie to me. Okay. Um, what, what, what do you think kept it from going to that next level for you? Um, I don't know. It, it seemed kind of like, it, it seemed impersonal at times. I mean, I think that changed in the second half, obviously. Um, well, but it, it didn't... It's it did, kind of the nature of the culture it was depicting. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah. it's Japan. <laughs> I mean, I thought about that a lot too. I think, especially post war Japan. I think a lot of it was just kind of about, yeah, like about changing Japan and a lot of about, you know, uh, how relationships between parents and children in Japan and how that sort of dynamic works in Japan. That's not something really. I, I mean, I kind of felt distant from that. I felt like either the time or the country. I felt a bit distant from that. Um, but that, I thought that scene um, in the bar when the two fathers were talking about how their children disappointed them was just, like, crushing to me. Uh, um, yeah. And, yeah, I, to me, it was all very, like, 
universal and relatable. Like the idea that, I, I that, agree with that children yeah. outgrow their parents and don't have time to spend with them anymore and don't focus on them as much, even when their parents are getting older and probably need more focus than they ever have before. And that parents, you know, have expectations for their children that to a certain extent children are never going to be able to live up to. Um, I think that's a, a, a universal theme that I, I, I could definitely connect with. Yeah, but that's true. I can also see how culturally it's, it was completely different for you and maybe that, that kept you from connecting with the theme. Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately I, I felt I felt kind of distant from the movie, I think, for the first half. Mm-hmm. And I really only started to come around to it late. So I don't and think... I mean, some of the big, the big punches yeah, didn't land. Yeah, I, don't think, I don't think it landed as hard for me at the end. If I, if had I been a little bit more captivated towards the beginning, yeah, like I, I think another another scene that sticks with me, and this is this is a movie that um, having even just you know just seen it very recently, I think some some of the scenes are going to stick with me for a very long time. And another one of them is when the uh, the grandmother takes her grandson for a walk, and she's talking about like what he'll be like when he grows up, and how she won't be there to see it. And it's just like it was a really nice, sad, touching moment. That became even more sad when later in the film the grandmother died. Yeah, yeah, it was that was a really well done moment. Um, and this is, I, I mean, it's a it's a movie that yeah, kind of doesn't comment on any of the the big things that it's doing, and sort of just lets them go by. And I think I can see how it would very e- you would very easily just not connect with those moments because of the way it was presenting them, and then uh, ultimately not connect with the film. I I, I guess. I, I think the thing for me was that. It kept me from connecting in the first hour of it was less sort of a cultural barrier. I found myself uh, having a much easier time to identify with the characters than I thought I would, given the removal in terms of culture and time period. Uh, I, I I thought that the film did a great job of um, making. I I didn't think there was that barrier at all. I I found it to be like very universal in terms of the themes and societal norms that they were dealing with uh, i think for me it was more just um the the repetitious nature of the first hour of the film i think the the bar scene that we were talking about a minute ago i think that happens i i think that begins the second hour if I'm yeah right. that's that's yeah. about the halfway point in the movie I yeah that that's about when i really started connect i mean and, but before that i mean it's like it, it's just basically like scene after scene of the same thing like over and over and over again and perhaps that was necessary to really like kind of establish you know just everything that they wanted to do later in the film see i think i think maybe it was but for me it just kind of put me to sleep a little bit maybe it was that like repetition like i was gonna say like i think that might have just kind of lulled me a little bit yeah and that's and then i felt more distant and then you know after the mother's death it was kind of like this jolt you know, maybe that. I mean, maybe that was intentional, though. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it worked. Yeah, it I, I was gonna say. I think. I think that's thematically effective, though, right? Because yeah. that's exactly how the children are. Um, they're completely emotionally disconnected from from their parents and kind of putting up with them, but not particularly interested in in them or how their vacation is going. And um, then you know, the mother dies, and it's not as much of a jolt as as it was, at least for me. Um, but it's you know, sort of jolts them out of their lives for a minute. Um, in terms of, of viewing it as a post-war movie, I don't know if either of you have seen Kurosawa's I Live in Fear, um, but that's something that I was thinking about while I was watching this. Uh, I watched a lot of Kurosawa movies when I was doing my Whose Film Is In Any Way column on auteurs, because I wrote one on him. And I Live in Fear is sort of uh, about the the nuclear fears in post-war Japan, and it's about a guy who's 
um, sort of caught up in the idea that he's going to get radiation poisoning. He's trying to leave Japan. Um, but it's got sort of similar... Uh, actually, it's not similar in a lot of ways, but I, it, it for some reason I kept thinking of the movie as I was watching Tokyo Story because it's dealing with the same period, I think. Um, have either of you seen that? No. No, I haven't. Um, well, it's good. Uh, it's less for Kurosawa. I mean, it's no... It's, it came right after, literally, he made Ikiru and Seven Samurai, and then that, um, and then Throne of Blood. So it's like, it's between, you know, a, a run of great Kurosawa movies, um, and it's a lesser work by comparison to them, but it's interesting. So if either of you were, were had your interest peaked on the culture of post-war Japan by that, I would go check out I Live in Fear. But it sounds the same like you especially did not. I didn't hate it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm just saying, I don't think this is a movie that... If you ask me, if th- is this one of the top three or top ten movies of all time? I'd say absolutely not. Sure. Um, now, let me ask both of you this. Is this something you think you'll return to to see if your views in it develop, or was once enough? Um, I, could, I could see myself returning to this movie later. Yeah, it, it's so highly regarded that I I feel like I owe it to myself to to return to it at some point and really try and look at it again with fresh eyes. Because I mean, it it for despite the fact that we might not hold it in the esteem that others hold it in, I mean, I think it's telling that it is very widely looked at as again one of the greatest films of all time. So I think it's one of those things where I want to make sure that I'm not missing anything that I'm not. Um, dismissing this film too quickly, so yeah, I do want to take another look at it at some point. Let me now. Let me ask you: Is that is that? I, I think actually that this is kind of an obvious question, but I'm going to go ahead and throw it out there anyway. Is that one of those things where it's like, well, everyone loves this, so am I wrong for not loving it, or is it a, a movie that, that you think is interesting enough um, that your views might develop on it? You know, do you think it's sort of a guilt watch where I've gone back to movies because it's like everyone loves this movie and I don't? Um, what's wrong with me? And I try to watch it again to see if I miss something. Um, and I've gone back to other movies where it's like, I thought that was okay, but I think I might need to see it again. Well, I think we've all I, kind of me, experienced that, right? Um, yeah. For some movie or another. I mean, I think I think this might be a movie where I have to do that. Um, it, but for you, Sam, it would be the guilt rewatch more than it would be the guilt. The it would be the guilt rewatch. And you know what? I mean, I definitely see like there's a lot in this movie to really like. I mean, I thought it was well directed, and the performances were great. But if you look, I, I, I look at this and I don't, I didn't feel the emotional connection to say Akiru from a year before, um, which, which I enjoyed oh much man. more. And that was like a tour de force and that would like ripped my heart out. Yeah. And Chris, if, if you haven't seen Akiru, it's a Kurosawa movie. And I have to, I mean, I agree, Sam, uh, from my current perspective, having just seen Tokyo Story, I think Akira was a much more powerful movie. Um, and it, again, it plays in, with some of the similar themes. Um, a lot, yeah, I think a Japan lot of similar themes. And about mortality. Um, but I, I agree that I think Akira was superior. But um, I like Tokyo Story enough that I think it's a movie that I'm going to return to because I want to watch it again. And I want to get back into the story. And I want to see if there are things that I missed. Sure. Um, and I want to see definitely if it becomes one of my all-time favorites. And eventually, when my movie quest comes to the 50s, if I ever get done with the 40s, um, and, you know, I'm bouncing back and forth, so it would be 40s, 90s, then 50s. But eventually, when I come to the 50s, I want to see how I can evaluate it within 1953 and within the decade as a whole. So it's definitely a movie that I want to go back to. Um, but I don't, I, I don't know. I don't think it's as much of a... Well, there's got to be a little bit of a guilt rewatch in there, because, like, <laughs> you know... 
Because it's the number three greatest movie of all time on, a, on the Sight and Sound poll, which is a, uh, a poll that I greatly respect. Like I said, I sort of, I view it as sort of the film canon. Um, and it wasn't, it didn't blow me away like Akira did, or like, you know, some of my favorite movies of all time have. So there would be a little bit of a guilt element to it, but I think I, I'm drawn to it for other reasons as well. What about you, Chris? I think I fall more into the guilt rewatch category. I, I definitely enjoyed the film, uh, but I didn't feel like there was enough there especially after it has that initial effect on you and gives you that jarring punch to really go back and absorb at least theme wise I, I feel like in terms of the actual theme and the story it was telling I think I got everything I could from the first watch around um, in terms of craft yeah I think there's some things to go back and take another look at but I definitely believe that this is more of a guilt watch for me I I, I like the film, didn't love it, and but it's so widely regarded, I kind of want to give it another chance, another look. Sure. Um, so I think we've, we've all experienced Tokyo Story now. We've all put some thought into it. Um, none of us loved it as much as we might have thought we would, though I think we all thought it was good. Um, those of you who listen to the podcast and watch Tokyo Story beforehand... Let us know what you thought if you'd like. Uh, obviously, I'll be plugging all of our various outlets in a few minutes at the end of the show. Um, those of you who haven't watched it, I would recommend it. Would you guys recommend it to listeners who haven't watched Tokyo Story? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Okay, so there, there's some reservation in terms of whether it's the great one of the great films of all time around here. Um, but we would all recommend it. So go check it out. Um, and again, if you, if you listen to the podcast, go watch Tokyo Story and have some thoughts on it. Feel free to share them in any of the various outlets I'll plug in a few minutes. Um, with that, before we close up the Review Be Named Movie Club, it's time for Sam to announce the movie we'll be doing uh, in, well, what, roughly a month when we return to Movie Club near the end of November. Yeah, I decided to, uh, I picked a movie that is on Netflix Watch Instantly, so anybody who's listening could watch along with us pretty easily. Um, I, don't, I don't think this one's on YouTube, but it's on Watch Instantly, and I think both of you guys have that, right? Yes. All right. Yes. So I was thinking about it. At first, I was going to go with Out of Sight because it ended up so high on uh, AB Club. The recent AB Club yeah. list. And yeah. it's like, how is it in the top 10 movies of the 90s? But then I was thinking about it, and I decided I wanted to go with something that's on Watch Instantly. And I don't think I'm settling here. Um, I'm picking uh, Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation. Uh, oh. Because... I haven't seen it. I don't know if, if you guys have both no, seen it. No, I haven't. I'm owing because I've no, been meaning to see it for either, so long. And I picked it because, you know, when I think of Francis Ford Coppola, he's like, you know, this heavy hitter, great director. But if you think about it, he's known for three movies being fantastically great. I guess four, counting the conversation, which is not a huge, you know, but he's like still prolific. And it's, you know, Godfather, Godfather Part Two, and Apocalypse Now. And everyone... You know, everybody, and the seminal classic Jack with Robin Williams. Classic Jack. You can't forget about Jack. He has. I have Jack disease. Um, <laughs> but it's it's interesting because I think the conversation is a movie that it came right. It came after The Godfather and before Godfather Two, and it's kind of excuse my wordplay. It gets lost in the conversation about uh, Francis <laughs> Ford Coppola. That, yeah, but it's it's a movie I've heard a lot of great things about. It's one that is talked about in the hushed whispers of the Godfather movies and Apocalypse Now in terms of, like, this is a great landmark uh, cinematic achievement. And it's one that I've always meant to see and have just never gotten around to. So well, now you're being I think forced. That's a great pick. 
Yeah, it's a great pick for Movie Club because it's something I've been meaning to do for a while, and now you're uh, you're making me do it at gunpoint. Yeah, it exactly fits the bill of what we're looking for. So, and it's yeah, e- excited, even yeah. better. None of us have seen it, which I was trying yeah. to go for. And cool. Sam, you uh, you apparently win Movie Club as well. Jesus, so I can't stop winning. <laughs> you're just such a such a special boy, Sam. I'm so special. Um, <laughs> and with that, we're going to close down Movie Club, and uh, it's time, as we do at the end of every show, to announce the winner of the week. Uh, this was, as, as we stressed me, a lot guys. during the news write-up, a very slow news week. And as such, we are not going to be offering the small cash prize to the winner of the week. However, this person, once they are announced, can feel free to come down and pick up their trophy and hang out with the review name staff at their leisure. Um, so, without further ado, we will be announcing the Rachel Tardif, uh, we will be awarding, rather, the Rachel Tardiff Memorial Award for Best Performance of the Week. To Jason Siegel, a guy we just like a lot, who happened to do something that we talked about. Yay. Jason, you could probably win some better weeks that you would actually deserve, but in the face of almost no news that we could really say anything about at all, you're worth winning the week. So congratulations, come pick up your trophy, come hang out with us at the review name, Lock of Offices, and uh, we'll all have a good time together, I'm sure. Bring some Muppets. Bring okay. along the Muppets. We would That would be even better, actually. Uh, in fact, definitely bring the Muppets. And we can talk about the cash prize being put back on the table if Kermit shows up. Yes. Um, with that, I'd like to say check out our website, as always, at reviewtobenamed.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at reviewtobenamed. You can email us at reviewtobenamed at gmail.com. Um, you can do those things to sound off on Tokyo Story or on any of the other things we talked about on this week's podcast. Or you can do those things to tell us this is a game you should play in future weeks. These are some nominees I think should be talked about for the news roundup. For weeks like this, when I otherwise have no ideas for what we're going to talk about, you can throw things out for, hey, do this as a segment. Or you can throw things out for, we want you to do this for Movie Club. There are all sorts of things you can sound off on, so go ahead and feel free. Um, with that, next week we're going to do a very special Halloween podcast, because Halloween's coming up, maybe you've heard of it. Um, so things are going to get a little bit spooky around the Review Me Name podcast. Um, hope you'll enjoy that. For now, um... Thanks a lot for listening. Have a great week, and we'll we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.